0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Monkey Business Podcast, the podcast that looks behind the actions, the successes, the failures of business people, entrepreneurs and mavericks who have become, through the taming of their monkey mind, kings and queens of their own particular jungle. And I'm joined today by Rachel Eleanor who is the British entrepreneur who created the multi-million market-leading Red Letter Days experience. She is now a business speaker, published author, and business mentor, co-creator of a digital publishing platform for evolutionaries. And, most interestingly for me today, to understand regarding the mindset and motivation is, by her own words, an outspoken commentator on the global and corporate hostile takeover bid, aka the Great Reset that is currently underway. So, Rachel, what is your take for people who maybe have heard the phrase the Great Reset bandied about, but are very unclear about what this means? Because it perhaps gets lumped in with weird conspiracy theories. What is your take on The Great Reset?
1: So in mid-2020, so many political leaders were saying, this is The Great Reset, this is The Great Reset. So I thought, I really need to uh, read the book by Klaus Schwab. And because I've got a whole business background and training, I I quickly realised when I read it that it wasn't... um, It wasn't like a strategic business plan. It was like a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats analysis. So a SWOT analysis of every key aspect of modern life. Um, But there was no strategic recommendations. But at the end, it said, we have to act and we have to act now. And all countries of the world need to come together and be decisive. But in the book, there was no plan. So I realized from my business training there must be a second part to that book which is a strategic implementation plan and then the penny drop that obviously every country in the world has signed up to this all of the key political leaders over the past 5 or 6 years um when i th- you know when they discovered how to win elections using social media and Um, You know, if you've watched The Great Hack on Netflix, you'll know that they've worked the formula out. That's how they won Brexit, through very clever marketing and psyops and propaganda and manipulation. When they discovered how to win elections, they basically just have have put World Economic Forum-groomed leaders in every key country. And so essentially, the governments of the world are owned by the corporate elite. So I kind of pieced this all together and I thought, oh, my God, this is serious because this 1% that has sucked up all of the world's wealth through capitalism is now in the driving seat and is going to just relentlessly push through this great reset plan. And it's, yeah, so when that penny dropped, I thought that's actually quite scary when I, when it dawned on me the extent of it.
0: And what year did you say that was?
1: That was um, in 2020. And I first started speaking out in, I did a video called Rachel Speaks Out uh, on in, in late September 2020, which went viral. And it had about quarter of a million views before it was banned by both YouTube and Facebook, but it kind of got out under the radar. And it was just at the time when people were were questioning, but no one had really articulated it. And so suddenly I articulated what a lot of people were thinking and feeling. And like people are, like, oh, my God, that's how I'm feeling. And I agree. And that's why it went viral. And it's like YouTube and Facebook t- took a time to jump on it. I think the algor- algorithms are far more sophisticated now because they're all over stuff like within minutes now. Where- whereas that ran for quite a few weeks before it got banned. But it was enough to seed a whole wave of interest. And then out of that, I started to delve more, research more, and do more videos and to create whole networks and community groups and, mm. and you know, develop a following.
0: Which I do want to come back to. I mean, I suppose my question at this point would be, did you have any idea just how big a Pandora's box you'd opened at that time?
1: Uh, no, because I think that the more that we... Uh, the more we go down the rabbit hole, the more we discover. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm just constantly keeping an open mind. I think that's one of the really key things is because the programming is so deep and it's so intense that keeping an open mind and not going into judgment and just like mm. investi- having that investigation mindset is really key so it's it's like I've I've been going deeper and deeper
0: and that's really why you um came on my radar really because mm. you know I'm all about opening your mind having an open mind questioning things how do we arrive at the thinking the mindset that we arrive at in my hypnotherapy work it's like how do we even change if you like or undo some of the old programs yes that is leading your mind stroke, belief stroke, emotion stroke, action stroke, what you do to actions and emotions and a life that you no longer want. Yeah. And that mm. comes from, you know, usually, if, if we want to be terribly facile about it, very early, um, not healthy, not healthful programming. Mm. And so that's what I do, obviously, wearing my hypnotherapy hat. And so for me, this is the purpose of this podcast, really, to understand that mindset and mm. to really get people to question and understand. So before we go forward with the whole psychops, etc., et cetera, because I am, that's the bit I'm particularly interested in, because um, also you probably know my background is in PR and media. Mm. <laughs> so I'm in an interesting juxtaposition where I have a kind of 30-year background in PR and media and communications and all of that and now a trained therapist and mm. coach understanding about mindset and it seems to me that the psychops um, that's being reported is is an entire combination of those two yeah absolutely media political as well but also you know how people are thinking or being programmed to think um How do you, so let's even double back on you, the super successful businesswoman and those early days, red letter days and forming that, where did your mindset come from or the points that make you question things and have the freedom to make your own choices and understanding and conclusions, where did that come from, from before in your childhood perhaps?
1: You mean the kind of old success mindset? Yeah, so yeah, like you, I've I've really unraveled and delved deep into all of that because uh, this stuff that drives our engine is so strong and yet it's in the subconscious and we're not yeah. even aware of it. Exactly. So I grew up above my dad's shop, I had three older brothers and... So I I was around a lot of masculine energy. We had to fight, you know, everyone. It was all about fight to win. And it was all around business. My dad was actually a very sweet businessman and I learned a lot from him. But with my brothers, it was all quite strong, yang, masculine Mm. energy. And so I just became the fighter. And it was a great training to go into business. And I had that, you know, I'd always wanted to go into business because I'd grown up around it. And I ended up going into accountancy, did seven years in accountancy, specializing in um, taxation of entrepreneurs and small businesses. And I found it quite inspiring, you know, to deal with all these people who'd created wealth out of nothing. So I, it was inevitable that one day I'd create my own business. Um, But I, because I'd done the client work for like big entrepreneurs like Sir Terence Conran. I kind of knew I didn't want to do just a small business I wanted to do something scale scalable and I created Red Letter Days when I was 24 and it took it took about 18 months to take off but when when it took off it just snowballed and I just wanted to grow and grow and I'd seen Anita Roddick float body shop and all of that era of the 80s Mm. women power women and it was, a, yeah, a really inspiring time. You know, Thatcher was prime minister. It was an inspiring time for kind of entrepreneurial women, and I wanted to be one of them. So it really drove, drove the engine of that. And of course, because I'd had this great training around men, how to deal with men and how to be tough, I was really in my masculine energy in those years, really drawing fully on that kind of inner masculine just to be able to just fight and just cut mm. through and just be be quite ruthless actually. And I, you have to be. And I was in the I was very much in the program, deeply in that program of capitalism and mm-hmm. money and power and winning and growth, which I think all of us were caught up in that, especially living in London.
0: Well, I've I kind of got a feeling that our paths might have crossed, you know, because. I also was in that world. Um, mm. I was grocer's daughter. <laughs> okay. I lived above the shop in my early yeah, years. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, lived the shop. Uh, the shop was part of the family. Yes. Um, even when I didn't live above it and it was separate, you know, business came first. So I always had a complete natural acumen for business. Um, I did economics, A level, but then I also had a love of English. So I ended up, as my mum said, fanning around for three years reading books, mm. <laughs> doing English literature. Um, I think a bit to the dismay of my parents because they wanted me to automatically go the business route. And then I fell into PR, which was a fledgling industry in the 80s and ended up at Lynn Frank's PR. So
1: I was at
0: the absolute heart of it um, and never looked back really. But I'm actually quite a sensitive soul under the extroverted um, exterior. And so I had to yang my way through Mm. um, the 80s. And I did pay quite a big price for it, really. And then I had my own PR company in the 90s. And you're right, you know, you, you, you don't build a multi-million pound PR company in London in the 90s without being a bit of a wall breaker. Yeah. And that energy is quite toxic, I think, as well, mm. because I think I had to suppress quite a lot of Natural mm. sides of myself, but at the time we didn't. You're right, we didn't know really any different, did
1: we? Yeah, yeah. And when I look back, I do feel that there was a very deeply embedded program, undoubtedly embedded by the sort of patriarchal system, that being a mother wasn't valued. And there was this whole superwoman thing, Shirley Conran, and and so I didn't think anything of just having a whole network of nannies, childcare, and maternity nurses going back to work after like a day after giving birth just like yeah i'm i don't need to, i'm not a. and i think that that was that was a very cynical program that was put in place because i now get that a lot of these leaders well these, these psychopathic sociopathic world leaders are actually highly traumatized little boys who've grown mm. up to be these cr- crazy you know huge amounts of frozen trauma. And I I do feel that we have neglected and certainly undervalued the role of good parenting and being a present mother and that nurturing so that we can bring up children that aren't traumatised, mm. you know, with all sorts of issues and dysfunctions and addictions and, you know, frozen trauma.
0: Yeah, I agree. And my... First husband, first husband and I, we appeared on the Ram- Esther Ranson show okay. in the late 80s or probably in the early 90s because the show was about education and the show was about what it gave you and could you be successful with different education. And we were like the poster people for it because I was a grocer's daughter from Nottingham and went to a comprehensive school. Mm. And my ex uh, grew up in the Bahamas and all over the world and went to Gordonstoun. Okay. And, you know, you couldn't have had a more polarly opposed, you know, really childhood and upbringing. And yet we seemed to work well in business together. But it took me a very, very long time and sadly a divorce and a hell of a lot of perspective to understand that... He was always seeking something from me, mm. and the thing he sought from me was that kind of normal, that normality, that childhood, that walk to school, and all the, you know, the ups and downs of it. But mm. he was packed off at eleven, yeah, you know, halfway across the world.
1: It's very traumatizing you know, boarding good, school
0: for his good. Yeah. So, To to make him a stronger person. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a very long time to work that out because you're right. I think in the culture of the 90s, um, and we're all looking at, you know, the Margaret Thatchers of this world, whatever you think about her politics. But you're like, I remember one of my members of staff being literally falling asleep at her desk because PR was long hours and quite a lot of drinking and all the rest Mm. of it. And I said to her, you know, what's going on? And she said, I'm going to get up at five every day. That's it. Maggie gets up at five. Mm. I'm getting up at five. I'm going to get more done, be more successful. And I'm not a big proponent of the 5am club. I think probably because of that, because I nearly paid for it all with my health. Mm. And I certainly paid for it in other ways. And I just think that yang energy now is very toxic. Yeah, yeah. In hindsight. Mm. So how did you change
1: your thinking on all of that? Uh, well, I do feel it was changed for me because I went through with the whole Red Letter Days um, era and then I got onto Dragon's Den and I was sort of the only woman on this, this four drag- with four male dragons. And I was forced through an administration with Red Letter Days, even though we had 3.3 million cash at bank, but the money was bonded... So I experienced the dark side of business and how much power there is in banks and um, how a bank can just control the money. And that whole shadow side of business, all of the greed and all of the people trying to basically get my company. And in the end, it was bought out of administration by my fellow dragons, Theo and Peter, who I got later, at the penny dropped after doing a lot of deep healing kind of work that actually they were my two older brothers when I was little who used to anything nice I had they would take and cut the hair off my dolls and things and so it was kind of I'd recreated this two older brothers who had all the power and I do feel that there is a very deep patriarchal program which has been embedded for many centuries that men have all the power a woman has to be like a man to get power and so this This deep programming, which we're now starting to really see all of this mind control, psyop, as you said, Um, and we're starting to wake up to it, because obviously once it's brought from the subconscious into the conscious awareness, it starts to lose its power. Um, And I feel we're starting to see a balance come in with bringing in more yin energy. And certainly for me, a big thing... It has been reconnection to nature hmm. without really realizing it. But all of my videos have all been filmed in nature, out with my dog, by the river. And that that's one of the big resonances that is so lovely to see you. You're not like in, in a studio or you're um, surrounded by nature. And so this reconnection to nature, because we're being lured into this labyrinth of digital everything, hmm. And um, it's very dangerous. It's very seductive, but it's very, very dangerous. And, you know, I've often said it, technology is a good servant, but when it tries to become our master, that's when it's very dangerous. So unplugging from digital is a big thing and reconnecting to nature, to uh, to the yin, to the feminine, to the natural, to the organic to Gaia Sophia and that's the true remedy for planet Earth not some let's block out the sun with some new technology that Bill Gates has invented I mean it's it's insanity Mm. it's a form of insanity what's going on and it's being driven by psychopathic men or mask certainly masculine energy
0: and again, I think that's where I picked up. I think I picked up on you doing one of your riverside walks mm. and talking. And also, I'm, I'm very familiar with um, where, where we are today in Derbyshire because uh, I trudged around doing my Duke of Edinburgh awards, <laughs> you know, mm. usually wet and a bit miserable and staying in some youth hostel somewhere. But I also have a lot of fond memories of uh, Derbyshire because being from Nottingham, it wasn't that far away. And I too have, in the last, well, it, it's been a gradual move. I moved away from London. I lived overseas. Um, even within the Bahamas where I lived, I went from Nassau, the kind of city, to an out island. It couldn't have been more remote. I lived on a 10-acre organic farm mm. while I came through cancer. Mm. And, and, and I had enough understanding. I'd like to thank perhaps Lynne Franks and all the Buddhists and my eyes being opened doing the yes. when I think my parents thought I'd joined a cult and gone a bit mad. And then during the 90s I'd done the PR for a lot of the world's leading development gurus so okay Tammy Robbins Edward de Bono yes and I met an amazing woman called Brandon Bays who does the journey yes yes and so I'd done I did their PR so I'm sort of yeah I'm doing all their PR doing all their courses. So you draw on that, don't you? you? They're like the kind of tools in your toolbox that you don't even know are there. And then I hit difficult times, cancer, divorce, all of those things. And I found myself drawing more and more on it. And so the lure of going back to London wasn't there anymore for me. And I moved back to Nottinghamshire and, and lived in a very nice market town. And then in this last year, I've moved right out into the Lincolnshire countryside on a small holding. Mm. And we have sheep and chickens and the whole caboodle. And so I'm absolutely saved by nature. And so, again, Mm. I think it really resonated with me when I saw you, you know, having those chats. And I've started to think about, yeah, where are we at? Where is this Yang? And where is this psychops, shall we say? So I think regardless of your listening, of your position, even on, for me, the Vax, COVID, the whole thing has been the inciting event if we were writing a screenplay within a screenplay they always have what they call the inciting event Mm -hmm. now that could be an explosion it could be you know somebody dies it could be whatever but it's the thing where everything has to kind of change and it all comes to a head Mm -hmm. clearly that's where we're at it seems to me in a way from what you're saying from reading the great reset and please tell me if i'm wrong on this that had it not been that, there would have been something else. Because this moving us all to the metaverse, to a male energy, to even more control, Mm. seems to have been planned.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's been planned for many years. But it's all part of a very deep programming. Um, And I've spoken a lot about evil and the kind of evil energy that's been driving this. Uh, So we are going into, or we've been driven into a very dark place, humanity. Um, And I do feel that a lot of people, I mean, they're, they're saying it's not a great reset, it's a great awakening, because actually what it's had the effect of doing is waking so many people up to realizing how deeply in the program they've been, and to just how much evil, dark energy... Is on the planet and so once you get those realisations you start looking for kind of antidotes which are outside of where they want to take us I mean the crazy thing about the whole last 20 months is all of this big pharma and the solution is in a jab it's just there hasn't been a single word about natural immunity and and I I, I, had, I was just like the World Health Organisation and yet there's not one single directive around natural immunity, health, natural remedies, anything holistic, the only solution is Big Pharma, and you just have to you have to question an organization that is allegedly the World Health Organization that doesn't have a word to say on any natural solutions. So that was a big Mm. uh, red flag for me.
0: Back to the the mind part of this, because this is what I keep coming back to, for me it's the, the really fascinating and awakening and enlivening time. I saw a really interesting interview with a psychologist who is a, an abuse um, specialist. Now, I, I often have clients, really, who have been abused, and I'm, I'm pretty savvy about abuse. I wouldn't position myself as an expert, but I I mm. probably know more than most people but i was very interested with her take on this that basically we've gone from the you know abuse will go from a micro level you know i'm being abused behind a door i'm in an abusive relationship um it's very covert it's behind the door and then more and more as the abuser becomes more empowered it becomes more overt and that that's gone on to now a macro level yes uh, in what's happening in the world and so there's a kind of a macro abuse going on, where people and now, people, governments, farmer, whoever, are very overt now in saying, you know, it's our way or the highway. And if you're not on board with this narrative, you're a conspirator or... Now that's the bit for me that I find really frightening, which is why I'm really fascinated to talk to people such as yourself and to learn more myself every day, because. I grew up to understand that questions were the answers. Mm. I grew up to understand that the more information we had, the more debate we had. You know, I was always a member of the debating side at uni, and I'd go on marches with placards. And I've always had friends who we didn't even agree or see eye to eye on things, but we were like, I'm forming my opinions, I'm taking in information. Never have I lived in a time before myself where not having the main narrative point of view is seen as being in some way wrong or bad and you're gonna be shut down for it. Mm. And I find that a very scary place to be, Mm. very troublesome. Um for you, is that about the combination of all those factors that you're talking about? Has that always been a plan or is it just a coming together of all of those things because that's what mankind is supposed to go through. What's
1: your take on that? Well, it's a great reset. It's a global corporate hostile takeover bid. And the I guess the clever thing is that those strategic partners of the World Economic Forum, not only do they own all of the big pharma, all of the big tech, but they also own all of the media. So it's the perfect corporate situation where you control the communication because for them this is a this is big business mm. you know this is massive business for them think of all of the money that's pouring into big pharma think of all the money that's pouring into big tech like a thousand new billionaires have been created through everything going online think of all the money that's going to be made out of crowd control and ai solutions to policing and tracking and as they attempt to push through digital passports, and then all of the money that's going to be made from finance and having digital currencies that can control everything and track everything. I mean, it's a, for a tot- totalitarian control. It's, it's, a, it, it, it's a whole new market for the corporate world. So no wonder they're pushing this through so hard and fast. And they've been very clever that they've got control of all of these key things. So The communication, you know, free speech, anything that gets in the way of the plan, like irritating things like free speech or people with an alternative narrative, the only solution that they have is to squash it. So um, it's, yeah, I mean, that's why I won't feed YouTube and Facebook with content now because I'm just not going to feed that river I'm not going to be a content creator, and I, do, I, you know, I hope a lot of content creators will follow my example and starve uh, Facebook and Twitter and all of those platforms, which are World Economic Forum, will starve them of content, so they're just left with pop videos and boring ads, you know. Um, so we have to create alternative ways of communication and doing everything. That is not big. That is not tied into that big corporate structure. That's the only solution.
0: And going back to the expert I saw on trauma um, and abuse, she also said that. The, the trouble with a trauma victim or a victim of abuse and again if you think of it on the micro level mm. the battered wife or she she used cults as a, a as an example very often somebody may be living and growing up and being within a cult that people will try to have interventions with them people will try to save them if you like people will say hey let us point out what's really going on with you And that the cognitive dissonance within that person, Mm. the inability to see the truth, because let's take the example of a a battered wife or a battered partner, it doesn't necessarily have to be a woman or a wife, but a battered partner, Um, would be that they ultimately still want to see the the good in the other person they ultimately still want to change the other person or believe that they are redeemable and it will all be okay also the other person has probably gaslighted them to such an extent that their self-esteem and self-worth is so low because they've constantly told them you know they're making Mm. it up or it's their fault and so her position is that and I'm saying this in the context of you calling it the great awakening it's really hard to wake these people up. Mm. Um, that worries me. Do you not think that might be going on at the moment?
1: Well, the way that I see it is that there's this persecutor-victim-rescuer drama triangle. And that is always a sign of unresolved trauma. So someone who is a victim will always look to a rescuer um and so the the governments or the corporates behind the governments the powers that be or the powers that shouldn't be they have they have positioned themselves recognizing that most people are traumatized they have positioned themselves as the rescuer and they've painted the picture that we're all the victim to this invisible enemy which is the persecutor so whether it's terrorism or covid or you know some or Omicron variant. UFOs or maybe. UFOs, yeah. Um climate change is another invisible enemy. So all you do is you create the enemy, this is classic divide and conquer. Create this really terrifying enemy that everyone's a victim of and everyone needs to be scared of and position yourself as a rescuer. And most people who've got who are in that in that traumatized place will won't create the space to question because when you're when you're triggered your frontal cortex switches off and you don't have the capacity for logical reasoning and it's very easy to tip people into fight flight Mm. or freeze and so that's what they're, they're relentlessly using that process to herd basically herd people mindlessly into the direction they want to take people and it's working for most people But for those of us who've got enough conscious awareness, who've started to question, who've done enough inner work to not be in that traumatised place, so we can create that space to go, hmm, let me just think of a question that doesn't quite stack up. That doesn't resonate. We've created enough space to not just go with the cognitive dissonance.
0: And is the labelling of such people, such groups... To effectively demonize them, that's part of the process. So you know, the minute you question it, you're you're an anti-vaxer. Mm. That that's part of that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's divide and conquer, and um, or divide and rule. Which, if you look at the Masonic symbolism, there's a, a ruler and a pair of dividers, and it's divide and rule. If you look at the Masonic, those, and I didn't. That penny didn't drop. So it's like.
0: I'll be honest, that's the first time that penny's dropped for
1: me. So Well if you look at the Masonic symbols, it's it's a pair of dividers yeah. and it's a ruler. So oh divide and rule. Oh, I get it. And so bit by bit, this is what's happening. It's like a kaplunk thing. It's a cascade. So you draw one straw out and then some pennies drop, some balls drop. And then the more the more you investigate, the more the more sticks and, and the more pennies drop and until You just start to see everything. Just like, oh my God, how did I miss that? But then, of course, we—I think I do feel—we have to have compassion for those who aren't Mm -hmm. quite there yet, because they may be still tuned into the BBC, reading the tabloid newspapers, which are all funded by the strategic partners of the World Economic Forum. So they're just being fed psyop, and it's very powerful. You know, mind engineering by people as as you've said military grade psyop which um is very difficult to unless you're consciously aware it's very easy to be sucked in to the program
0: and I like that you've mentioned compassion because again going back to the the woman I saw interviewed about and um I, I will work out who she is and, and credit her when I broadcast this but who talked about the abuse and was an abuse expert. And she said, you'd have compassion if one of your family was the abuse victim. Mm. You know, if one of your family was the one that you're trying to do the intervention on or trying to help, you would have compassion for them. Um, That said, how hard is it for you to keep holding this line and walking this line? Because I've seen, even on social media, you're often on the receiving end of, some quite vitriolic comments. How do you, how do you walk through that? Protect yourself from that. cope with that.
1: Yeah. Well, just to go back, uh, um, just to go back a step. There, it's not actually just compassion for the victim, but it's also having compassion for the persecutor, which is the has taken the position of rescuer because they're all interlinked those roles. So when you start understanding trauma you realize that every psychopath sociopath is a highly traumatized little boy basically so it's starting to have compassion for those leaders who have, are in that place of heartlessness and who are pushing through this because they cannot feel empathy and you know their heart is completely closed down and they've got frozen trauma so you can't literally can't feel if you're if you've got a lot of frozen trauma especially if you've been through the public school system boarding school highly challenging parenting you know it makes for hardened people and that psychopaths that's how they're able to do the most horrific things because they can't feel Mm. so it's compassion for all and compassion for self and other and so that's the obviously the the place to hold but of course we're all working through our our own trauma we're all on a healing journey so it's having that kind of awareness, because I know that I. There's sometimes when I can really hold my centre, and other times I just get pulled out. I do, I do get pulled out into fight-flight. I do get sucked into these drama triangles. I have a lot of people attacking me. But I get that that's rooted in, in my own childhood trauma, which is about being bullied when I was little and being vulnerable and helpless in the face of overwhelming external force which is a big one for most people. So unless you collapse that trauma, it will keep representing itself. So as much as we want to fix the externals, it's really important to keep going on the inner planes. Okay, what haven't I cleared? What do I need to (laughs) transmute? You know, it's an inner journey as well as an external journey. So I'm constantly oscillating between kind of trying to shift externals and then no, I need to come back. Okay, Where's that rooted? What do I need to clear in myself? What I haven't I dealt with yet? And that once it's dealt with on the inner planes, usually that external evaporates and leaves. So.
0: And apart from nature and a pursuit for truth and healing the trauma, what else strengthened you in this journey?
1: Yeah, well, a big thing for me has been opening to plant medicine, actually, specifically ayahuasca. And that uh, draws often a, tr- a strong response, because people are like, oh, it's drugs, and I don't need drugs to get a spiritual connection, blah, blah, blah. But um, And it, I was in resistance to it for at least a year, but um, I've been on four spiritual pilgrimages to Peru, and I've really opened to plant medicine, which is... In my experience, an entheogen, which drives the ceremonial shamanic journey, which is profoundly healing as well as highly visionary. And that to me has been a really powerful, pivotal thing in my life because it's allowed me, the, the medicine has shown me how the how what lies beyond the veil and also how the labyrinth, which is a, um, the dark labyrinth, uh, is, which is basically made of fear. Mm. and beyond this veil is just pure love so it's helped me to navigate this life and to really get when I'm in that in the labyrinth of fear and what it feels like and to notice it and to give me the tools to be able to use breathing and just to align so I can keep closer to source and that's why um, being close to nature is really important because it Really helps to reset your energy and help bring you out of that labyrinth of fear and into nature. So just look at all these lockdowns: mm. not allowed to go out, not allowed to hug, not allowed to sing. You know,
0: the very things that
1: the very things the very that connect things you to hum- humanity and and raise your vibration. Yeah, they need they know what they're doing. The very it's very sinister that
0: connect us and connect us to humanity. So. I'm pos- I'm always good at putting myself in the position of somebody listening who's probably like really interested with all of this starting to you know think about things question things which is really the whole purpose of my <laughs> monkey business podcast to think about the thinking behind the behaviors of of people and leaders what What does the future look like? Because you've talked about connection to nature, good, possibly versus evil, light. For somebody who may be thinking, well, it all sounds very well and good, but it's, you know, what does that really mean? It's Mm. all a bit nebulous.
1: How Mm -hmm. would that,
0: you know, we can't get rid of the entire infrastructure of the world. How would you see a future that would start to be less yang and more yin but also not mean that every single structure we had had to to be taken away. Um, How do you see a future that could be tangible for somebody who's already very afraid and this is very new thinking? Mm.
1: Well, the first thing to realise is that the, the future which we are being bulldozed towards is transhumanism, which is a very scary... Point where it's not just digital passports on your app, on your phone, they're embedded as a chip and they're sending signals and you've got nanotechnology. I mean, it's a its a nightmare scenario and a, a good dystopian future. So that is where we're being herded and bulldozed. Um, but this great awakening is what it's having the effect of doing is people are now questioning everything about how we live on this planet and how we organize ourselves. People are questioning government, democracy, not just shall we change the politicians, let's just change the whole system. People are questioning health. You know, this isn't, this is, this is big pharma.
0: Mm.
1: You know, it's a a national sickness service. It's not a health service, not about healing. It's not about well-being at all. Uh, It's about huge amounts of money and then and then education how are we educating our children it's just an indoctri- indoctrination system of grooming our kids for a command and control future no we want to do homeschooling we want to change the education system so and religion is another big one so the justice system how we please how we keep the peace how we deal with trauma and understand how trauma is driving a lot of um antisocial behavior mm. so i think what's happening is we are um, the, the ones who are awakening are starting to question the system, and we are starting, we're already creating alternatives, like with health. I mean, there's already, you know, it, la- the last big health scare that I had, I didn't look to the NHS. I went, I looked to all of my mm. holistic teachers and friends, and everything I knew about sound healing and essential oils and. And you know, it, you don't have to go down that allopathic, big pharma route because the body's just illness is the body's language to say there's something out of balance, as you found with your cancer, and it well, can it's be dis- healed. Disease, dis- absolutely.
0: Thank God that you know, I, I thank God that I worked at Lim Franks in the eighties and i was surrounded by Buddhists. And yes. they introduced me to Ayurvedic doctors and acupuncture yeah. and, you know, lots of what was called alternative medicine in the day. And then, thank God, I um, worked for Tony Robbins and discovered Brandon Bayes and mm. uh, epigenetics and the mind-body connection and trained in NLP and hypnotherapy in the 90s. Because, yeah, when I had the cancer 17 years ago, I... Well, you'll, you'll find this interesting. I was offered any hospital in America I wanted to go to. I was living in the Bahamas and had very, very good insurance. Mm. Very People go very lucky, but, you know, that was the situation and I'd invested into it. And yeah. I could have gone to the Sloan Kettering and I checked the Sloan Kettering out and I realised that a lot of the top doctors and surgeons also sat on the big pharma
1: company. Mm. Yeah. That, was,
0: that was 17 years ago and the penny dropped. Yeah. And I wasn't even anti it then at the time. I just was anti being put into any treatment protocol that didn't involve my own freedom of choice about my body. Yes. And so I ended up going to the Moffitt Cancer Clinic in Tampa, which is an independent um, hospital. Of course, they still wanted me to go down the kind of oncology route, etc. And I had to really stand my ground and trust myself and pray and dig deep and go, no. And so, from them going, we're going to chuck, chuck the, everything at it. You've got a very bad form of cancer. We're going to do double mastectomy. We're going to do radiation. We're going to do chemo, you know, tamoxifen. I ended up with a lumpectomy and radiation. I'll be honest, if that's today, I probably wouldn't even do the radiation. Yeah. And then I moved to a 10 acre organic farm on an out island. Mm. And I lived on the land and the sea and healed myself. For yes. I did have the surgery you know I'm not I'm not saying there isn't a place for for that kind of medicine but even 17 years ago I was on that journey Mm. and it seems to me it often takes something very personal to wake somebody up yeah um I have lots of wellness warrior friends we've Mm. nearly all got a similar tale to tell yeah so yeah so thank you for summarizing that so I want to end on two questions, which is what's the question I haven't asked you that you'd like to ask yourself?
1: Oh <laughs> I have to edit a bit of umming and ahhing out here. Um, so I think the the thing that we haven't really talked about in a lot of detail is witiko and the nature of evil, which I've got very, very interested in and have also kind of dabbled into Gnosticism and have been influenced by John Lamb Lash. Um, and I spoke to him and he said, the really key thing to understand about what is going on on the planet right now is that this is not being driven by humans. This is is non human, lower-dimensional, dark, heavy vibration energy, which is looking for traumatized humans, almost like shells, to work through. And when, you, when the, that penny fully drops and you realize that this is quite satanic, quite evil, quite archontic, um, then you're not trying to um, give the benefit of the doubt to to the people behind this, you start to to really realize that this is serious and it needs a different energy to transform it. And that is light and resonance because those are the kind of kryptonite for lower dimensional um, entities which feed off fear and dissonance uh, by, um, by definition. If you shine light and you create harmonic resonance and truth has a tremendous resonance along with sound and joy and laughter and music, all the things we weren't allowed to do, mm. those are the remedies. And it may sound a bit woo-woo, because like, oh, what's that going to do? We need to fight. We want, I, and I say to people, we're not going to fight the world right, we'll just add more dissonance. Fighting the world right is a deep program which has been embedded we need to, yes, have righteous rage, but move that into that anger, into um, powerful action of standing strong, saying no, shining light, creating resonance, because that's what's going to collapse the Watiko.
0: Rachel, thank you so much. Um, there's certainly no scarcity of truth and courage here. Mm. And I really thank you um, for speaking up and speaking out. And they'll be my guest today. Yeah. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Rosalind. Thank you.